Tonight we're going to come to the final event in our study of understanding the last days. Tonight, of course, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. And what I'd like to do is go back one final time over this timeline we've been working on every Sunday night. And by now, you either have it in your, in your notes or maybe you have it in your head, the, the sequence of events. And I'm going to give you some of them and I'm going to ask you to fill in the blank on some of them. Now, again, others may say this is not the sequence of event that they follow regarding the rapture and that kind of thing, but, but at least this gives us a starting point to understanding the last days. And this is, I believe, the sequence of events as I understand Scripture. Uh, so... The first sequence in the events, of course, is the first coming of Christ. Uh, and, the, and the first coming of Christ would be significant because of the cross of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, which we celebrated tonight in the Lord's Supper. So you have the first advent or the first coming of Christ. That's the first thing on the timeline. And then the next thing on the timeline is what we call the church age. That's the age we are living in after Christ ascended back to heaven. Uh, the book of Acts opens, the church was born, and we are now living in the church age. After the church age, if you go across that timeline, what's the next event? The rapture, exactly. The rapture is a future event. We don't know the exact time. And if anybody tells you they do know the exact time, don't you listen to what they tell you. Uh, the rapture is going to be a future event at an unknown time when God's people will be taken from this world. And it could occur at any time. There are no other events that need to occur prior to the rapture. So we have the first coming, we have the church age, the time in which we're living, then there is the rapture, and then what follows the rapture? Tribulation, seven years of tribulation. After the tribulation, what's the next great event on God's great timeline? Second coming of Christ. And following the second, which we'll talk about tonight, following the second coming of Christ, there is the next event that we talked about last Sunday night, which is the millennium, or the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then following that, we would simply call it eternity. Once the millennium has ended, there is eternity. So tonight, we really want to focus on the second coming of Christ, which is the central theme of much of the Bible. It might surprise you how often the second coming of Christ is mentioned in the Bible. Let's go back to the scripture we were using in the Lord's Supper. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. At the end of, of Paul's discussion about the Lord's Supper, Paul makes this commentary. He says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's interesting to me, in that first century, those first Christians, Paul was emphasizing to them the return of Jesus Christ, even in relation to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That there is a definite understanding that Jesus is going to be coming back. As surely as he came the first time, he will come again the second time. Now, the reason Paul says this is because of something Jesus said, uh, and it's recorded in several places in the Gospel, but let's look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. On the night that Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, Luke chapter 22, he also said something about the second coming. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through 18, if you're taking notes. 
Verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, or before I go to the cross, is what that word before I suffer means. So notice this, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer or before the cross. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So even on the night that the Lord was having what we call the the Last Supper, even on that night when he was emphasizing his death, and he was saying goodbye, in essence, to to his followers, even on the, the night of the Passover meal, where Jesus would eventually be slain as the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus said, I just want you to understand something. I don't plan to eat any more Passover meals with you until the kingdom comes. That's a reference to the second coming. Jesus said, one day the kingdom will come. And when the kingdom comes, look look how he describes it in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then he explains that a little further, verse 18. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. One day he'll renew his fellowship with us. He said, right now I'm fellowshipping with you in this meal, but I don't plan to fellowship with you like this again until the kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, we will be joining him in what Revelation 19 calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will sit down with the Lord. Like like right now, we're commemorating the Lord's death through the Lord's Supper. And we do that occasionally throughout the year, remembering the Lord's death through the Lord's Supper. But he said, there's coming a time when you will not need to commemorate that anymore because you will sit down with me at what Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink his cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. My point is simply this. You and I can have the conviction and the assurance that just as sure as Jesus came to earth the first time, so he will return again at the conclusion of the great tribulation. He will come again a second time. And just like we have the Lord's Supper, and it's an occasional reminder of what he did on the cross, we will one day sit down with him for that final celebration with him in heaven. Now, as Christians, we're quite familiar with the record of our Lord's first coming. Uh, in fact, next Sunday, as a matter of fact, we'll begin focusing on the record in the, found in the Gospels about the Lord's first coming. And we'll begin preparation for understanding and celebrating Christmas. We all are very much aware of His first coming. That is literally history. But the Bible clearly and repeatedly tells us also that the Lord is coming again. And His second coming is prophecy. So that's what we're talking about tonight. One example is found in in the book of Hebrews. Take your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 27 and 28. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment... So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. 
And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I really like that phrase, a second time. He will appear a second time. We have the advantage, I don't know if you recognize this, but we have the advantage that the second coming of Jesus is clearly separated from the first coming of Jesus through a passage of time. It's separated by time. In other words, we kind of have the advantage because we're living between the two events. Look up here, let me try to explain it to you. The first coming of Jesus happened at a moment in time. And then there's the church age in which we are living. And the first coming of Jesus is history. We're living through the church age and we're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus through prophecy. When we get to the second coming of Jesus, then all of this will be fulfilled. So where are we living? We're living between those two events. So it's easy for us to understand the first advent and the second advent. It's easy for us to look at Scripture and say, oh, this Scripture is referring to the first advent, or this Scripture is referring to the second advent. We're living between those two events. And so it's kind of easy for us in some ways to understand what the Bible is talking about when we read about uh, the advent of Christ. But have you ever thought about the Old Testament prophets? The Old Testament prophets were not living between these two events. The Old Testament prophets were living on this side of the first advent. And so as the Old Testament prophets were looking forward into history, and and they were prophesying about the coming of the Savior, and they were They were prophesying about his suffering and they were prophesying also about his reigning as king and lord over all and conquering. All they could see was the future and not necessarily could they define sometimes the first advent or the second advent because for them, the Old Testament prophets, it's all in the future. Does Does this make sense? They're looking at it from this perspective. It's all in the future. Now the reason I bring that up it's because the Jewish scholars who, were, who would study Old Testament prophecy, sometimes it was hard to distinguish what the prophet was talking about. Prophecies in the Old Testament speak of a Messiah both as enduring great suffering and as accomplishing a great conquest. And the thought that, that this Savior would come at two different times for the Jewish scholars looking at Old Testament scriptures, sometimes that was confusing to them. In their mind, when Jesus would come, and I'm talking about the Jewish scholars, not the the, the prophets, but when the Jewish scholars would study history, and they would think about this Savior that was coming, this conqueror, they thought in terms of one advent. Many times, in terms of one advent. Because from their perspective, that's all they could see, was one advent. That's why I believe one of the reasons, one of the reasons, that the Jewish people, when Jesus came to the earth, they had a hard time understanding how the suffering Savior could be Messiah. Because in their mind, they couldn't separate the two events. Now, let me show you a scripture that I think will help clarify if you're wondering where all this is heading. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. My point, again, and just for clarity, is that 
the Jews often thought that the suffering Savior would also be the conquering Savior and it would occur in one advent. They didn't realize he would come first as uh, the first time to suffer and the second time to conquer. Now, the reason I say that is because look at what, our, what we read in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. He's meeting with his disciples before he goes to heaven. And as he's talking to them, verse 6, So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, we're familiar with what the Old Testament prophets have talked about. And so, uh, we, know that you, we know that you have died and you were buried and you're resurrected. Now, we're still trying to wrap our minds around what all of this means. Lord, is this the time that you're now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, for them, it was hard to distinguish between the first advent and the second advent. After he ascended back to the Father, after the, the Holy Spirit came to dwell within them, then they began to understand, he is coming again. Then they began to understand what he meant at the, at the uh, uh, last Passover that he ate with them. He says, I'm not going to eat this again until the kingdom of God comes. Then after they received the Holy Spirit, then they began to have a better understanding of what all of that meant. Dr. John Walford said it this way. He said, from the present day vantage point, speaking of us, from the present day vantage point, since the first coming is history and second coming is prophecy, it is comparatively easy to go back into the Old Testament and separate the doctrine of Jesus' two comings. In his first coming, he came as a man. He lived among people. He performed miracles and ministered as a prophet as the Old Testament predicted and died on the cross and rose again. All of these events clearly relate to his first coming. On the other hand, the passages that speak about his coming to reign and judging the earth and rescuing the righteous from the wicked and installing his kingdom on earth relate to his second coming. They are prophecy, not history. I thought that was a great description of why sometimes you see even the disciples saying, we're still trying to wrap our minds around this. When are you, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Dr. David Jeremiah said the contrast between our Lord's first and second coming is really dramatic when you begin to look at the scripture in its totality. He said in the first coming, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And in the second, he'll be clothed, in royal, he'll be clothed royally in a robe dipped in blood. In the first coming, he was surrounded by cattle and common people. And then in the second, he'll be surrounded by the massive armies of heaven. In the first coming, the door of the end was closed to him. And in the second coming, the door of heaven will be opened as he comes again. In the first coming, his voice was the tiny cry of a baby. And in the second, his voice will be the thunder as the sound of many waters. In the first coming, he was the Lamb of God who came to bring salvation. And in the second coming... He'll be the lion of the tribe of Judah who will bring judgment on the world. And so in our minds, from our vantage point, we kind of have the advantage that we can understand clearly there was a first advent and there will be a second advent. The first advent is history. The second advent is prophecy. And so I want to talk a little bit tonight about the anticipation of Christ's return. If you're taking notes, you can make that your next point. The anticipation of Christ's return. You and I are most familiar. If I were to say, give me some verses about 
the first coming of Jesus, the first advent, the, give me verses about the Christmas season, you could come up with those very quickly. You know those. They're very familiar with, to you. You have learned about the, the Christmas story since you were little. In fact, uh, quite frankly, let me just give you a, a kind of an insight as a pastor. One of the hardest things to do for a pastor is to get up and preach about Christmas over and over and over and over because you've heard the story so often. But the second coming. The second coming, you probably don't know the verses quite as well. The second coming, you probably couldn't find them quite as easily. The second coming, you may not understand them quite like you do the first coming. And yet, the second coming gets more ink in the Bible than the first. Now, I want to make sure you hear that. The second coming gets more ink in the Bible than the first. David Jeremiah said the references to the second coming outnumber references to the first by a factor of eight to one. That's pretty significant. Now, I've often wondered, who, who sits down and counts all this stuff up? You know, especially before they had computers. How, how, did they, how did they figure all of this up? And he went on to say, his return is emphasized in no less than 17 Old Testament books and seven out of every ten chapters in the New Testament. The second coming is second only to faith as the dominant subject or theme in the New Testament. And so what I want to do is just look through Scripture with you real quickly uh, about how some of the people spoke about the second coming of Jesus. First of all, the prophets in the Old Testament, of course, spoke about the second coming of Christ. Now, look up here again. Remember, the prophets in the Old Testament, and they're looking forward. They're looking forward. It's, it's kind of like... Have you ever been driving across a, 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 a plain or a valley and you see mountains in a distance and it's hard to, to determine if it's one mountain or two because of your perspective and the closer you get, the easier it is to understand, oh, there's two mountains and there's space between them. That's kind of the Old Testament prophet and he's looking forward to the first and the second advent. And Zechariah gives us more clarity about the second coming than any Old Testament prophet. We've looked at this once before, but I want to go back to it. Zechariah uh, gives us such clarity on this issue. That's found in, in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14. Towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, look for the book of Malachi and go left. And you'll see Zechariah. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Go left one book and you'll find Zechariah chapter 14. He gives us the clearest and most concise prediction as an Old Testament prophet about the second coming. It's absolutely amazing. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. On that day, now this is, what, this is highlighted in my Bible. Maybe you want to underline it or highlight it in yours. Verse 4, On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives, Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half the mountain uh, moving south. Now, now, please understand something here. This is so significant. I want you to notice that Zechariah deals in specifics. He's pinpointing the geographical location where Christ will return. His feet, Zechariah says, will land on the Mount of Olives. We don't have to wonder where that is. It is significant that the Mount of Olives 
is, is a geographical reference that is still known today. This is not a place where we go to Israel and say, well, we're not sure the Mount of Olives could be here or it could be over there. It could, could be over... No, we know exactly where the Mount of Olives is and that location is an identifiable place that has retained its ancient, its ancient name even today. You go to Jerusalem today and it's very clear where the Mount of Olives is and it's very clear that that is the place Zechariah in the Old Testament looks forward and he says his feet are going to land on the top of the Mount of Olives when he comes back. So when, we, when the Lord does come back a second time, we know exactly where he's going to come back. His feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives. And when his feet lands on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split the mountain in two. So the Old Testament prophets look forward to the second coming as Zechariah is one Old Testament prophet as an example. Jesus himself also spoke about his second coming. And in fact, if you are taking notes, Jesus referred to his return 21 times in the Gospels. 21 times in the Gospels. Let me look at just one with you. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 27. For as lightning, this is Jesus speaking. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Skip down to verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken, and at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus is speaking here, and he's telling his disciples, there's coming a day when I will come back, and when the world sees me returning, the Bible says that they will mourn, the nations will mourn. I want you to think for just a moment, why would the nations mourn? Why will the nations of the earth mourn? It's for this reason. It will be an instantaneous realization when they see the Lord Jesus that He is real and that they have lived a lie. They have believed a lie. They have built their lives on a lie. And the peoples of the nations will mourn when they see that He has come. They don't have a chance to change their lives. So the Old Testament prophets uh, talked about His coming. Jesus announced His second coming 21 times. The angels also announced the return of Jesus. Uh, let's go back to Acts 1. We've been there previously, but I want to show you something new. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Immediately following Jesus' ascension into heaven, the angels speak to the disciples. You've heard me read this before, but I want to show you something a little bit new. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Let's, well, let's start in verse 10. They were, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, that is, he was ascending back to heaven. And by the way, where did he ascend from? Where was he when he ascended from the earth to heaven? Mount of Olives. 
They were, verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. Listen, if you mark your Bible, I would underline those words, will come back. In the same way, you have seen Him go into heaven. He will come back visibly. He will come back bodily. He will come back personally. The Lord Jesus, this same Lord Jesus, will come back. There used to be some liberal theologians who said, well, it's not Jesus is going to come back. It's just going to be the Spirit of Jesus who comes back. But that's not what the text says. The text says, this same Lord Jesus will come back just like you've seen Him leave. And so He will come visibly. He will come personally, he will come bodily, he will come back. Now here's what I want to show you. Don't miss what they were told in verse 12. Or what we were told in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. They returned from the Mount of Olives. So Jesus ascended to, from, uh, back to heaven from the Mount of Olives, and according to the angels, he will return to that same exact Spot. As, as the angels spoke to these disciples, it was a word of consolation because they were grieving their loss, but it was also a word of confirmation as they were telling them, He's going to come back. Watch this. He's going to come back right here. Again, there is an exact geographical location we know where it's going to happen all right finally let's go to what john the apostle said about the second coming let's go to revelation now we're going to spend some time in revelation in our closing moments revelation chapter one john the apostle spoke of, of course about the second coming of jesus revelation chapter one Verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Did you notice here that John also refers to the reference that they will mourn? All the peoples of the earth will mourn because it will become immediately apparent they built their lives on the wrong foundation. That's the way the book opens. The book opens by announcing that Jesus will come back and everybody will see it. And look how the book closes. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. The next to last verse says, He who testifies to these things. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Can you put an amen there? Are you, are you looking forward to the return of Jesus? Let me finish by talking about the climax of Bible prophecy. This is where some of you, I'm sure, wanted to make sure we cover. The climax of Bible prophecy. The second coming of Christ is by far the most dramatic event in Bible prophecy. And it is descri described for us in Revelation 19. Revelation 19. 
If you'll go to Revelation 19, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16, where John, through the revelation of the Spirit of God, John has a, a vision and understanding of what the second coming will be like. And John describes it for us. And it is the climax, the most dramatic event in Bible prophecy. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. John says, speaking about this vision, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Not just a crown. He's not just a king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. That's why there are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The Word of God harks back to the first chapter of John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, in the very first chapter, he indicates, talking about the first coming or the first advent of Jesus. He talks about his incarnation and he says it this way. He says, the Word became flesh. The Word of God became flesh. That's how John describes it in John chapter 1, his first advent. Now, the second advent is described this way. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, have you ever seen army, verse 14, have you ever seen armies dressed in fine, clean, white linen? Where's the fatigues? How many of you were, were in the military and you, had, you wore fatigues? All right. You wear fatigues for battle, right? I mean, that's, you don't wear nice, fine, white linen into battle. So why are the armies of heaven, which would include the angels as well as those you and I who have been raptured and taken up to heaven, he's going to bring all the Christians with him, and the Bible says we're going to be dressed in fine white linen. Why are we coming like that for the greatest battle this world has ever seen? Because we ain't going to have to do anything. We're not fighting that battle. It's not up to us. Let me show you why I say that. Verse 15, the very next verse. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, before I read verses 17 through 21, I want to show you a picture. Uh, if we can put that up. This is a picture taken on the top of Mount Megiddo. Megiddo, or some call it Megiddo. I call it Megiddo. But this is a beautiful, beautiful setting. This is taken on the top of the mountain, Megiddo. And it's looking out over the valley of Armageddon. It's also called the Jezreel Valley. Beautiful setting to stand on top of that mountain and look out over this flat valley. I want to show you the next picture. 
uh, it's hard to capture this valley. In fact, one of the things that is striking about this valley is how flat it is. If you've ever been there, if you've ever stood on, on Mount Megiddo and overlooked this valley, it's approximately 145 square miles. 145 square miles flat as a tabletop. Napoleon said it's, it's, it's the perfect battlefield in all the world. Many battles have been fought on that land. This particular picture was taken from the top of Mount Carmel. And in the kind of the top right hand corner there, if you see, I don't know if you can make out what it is, but there's actually Israeli airstrips already there. This was taken, from, again, from the top of Mount Carmel, overlooking the Jezreel Valley. And the, the Mount of Megiddo is over, from this vantage point, would be over to our right. 145 square miles of flat land. And I want you to look at that flat land and just listen. Don't even look at your Bible. I want you to look at this picture because this is where the Valley of Armageddon will take place. And again, like the Mount of Olives, there is an exact location we know exactly where the events will occur. Because in Revelation chapter 16, let me just read it to you. It says, Revelation 16, 16, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon is from the Hebrew word Har Megiddo or Mount Megiddo. Armageddon is the valley of Armageddon is where this battle will take place. When the Lord Jesus comes back. So his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. And then he will eventually make his way to Galilee. To, to this valley. And look what it says. Or, or I'm sorry, just look at the picture and let me read to you what it says. And I saw an angel standing in the, uh, standing in the sun. Who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come and gather together for the great supper of God. He's talking to the birds. The angel is talking to the, bird, to the birds. Come and gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Verse 19 says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. The armies of the world will gather on this flat plain. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on, on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with, with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now get this, remember this. The two of them, before the battle even starts, the two of them are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. The rest of them, verse 21, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. My point in showing you this is to help you to understand something. The Lord Jesus is coming back to this place. And when He does, His second coming will be far different from His first. 
in his second coming, he will come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will judge the nations of the world. And he will defeat sin and Satan forever. The battle of Armageddon. Now let me tell you a couple other little caveats here before we leave. I'm out of time. But one of the cool things about being on... Could you go back to the first picture? One of the cool things about being on the Mount of Megiddo and overlooking the Valley of Jezreel or the, uh, the Valley of Armageddon. When you're standing there looking at it, just like we're looking at it today, if we were to be there on the mountain, over on the left, you would see another mountain range off in the distance. And on that mountain range, you would see all these lights. And if you looked real close, you could see buildings. And if you're standing on Megiddo, looking over to the left, that city, that village that you see is Nazareth. Where Jesus grew up. So He grew up at the very place overlooking the valley where He one day would come back and fight the final battle. He grew up overlooking the valley of Armageddon. Second thing I would tell you is this. Again, if you're standing there on Mount Megiddo and you're looking to, to our left, not far left, but if you're looking about 10 o'clock, standing on the mountain, look about 10 o'clock, then you'd see Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, it is believed to be, it's one of the places at least that we believe might have been the... the site of the transfiguration where Jesus took Peter, James, and John and he revealed himself to them. He kind of pulled back the curtain and let them get a glimpse of his glory on, on the mountain overlooking the valley of Armageddon. He let them see a little bit of his glory and one day in this very valley the whole world will see his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me pray with you. Father, we are grateful that you are Lord and you are God and you love us enough to change our lives as we have seen tonight, as we've testified through standing, as we have remembered through the Lord's Supper, and now as we think about what's going to happen on that flat tabletop plain called the Valley of Armageddon. And you're going to be victorious with the Word that comes out of your mouth. I pray that if there's anyone here and they couldn't stand earlier tonight, they don't have the certainty that they know Jesus. I pray that before their head hits the pillow tonight, their knees will hit the floor and they will ask you to be their Lord and their Savior. And we recognize you are not only our Lord and our Savior, but you are also our soon-coming King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.